Hello and welcome to another episode of Mere Fidelity, where we have conversations about life, theology, and the life of the culture, life of the church in the culture. Um, I'm Derek Oshmaui, and we're back again in our first episode of the new year with the full cast and crew, Matt Leah Anderson, Alistair Roberts, and Andrew Wilson. And uh, it's, it's great to have him back, but we also have a guest, not in the studio because the studio is too professional for us. But on the phone, we have Joshua Ryan Butler, friend of ours who is an author of the new book, The Skeletons on God, in God's Closet. Uh, he is the pastor of local and global outreach at Imago Day Community, and we're just really excited to have him on the show today to talk about his new book. Uh, Josh, why don't you say hi? Hey, so good to be here, guys. Thanks. Well, we're really excited to have you on. Um, we've all read your book, and I'm, I'm pretty sure we're all fans. I, I am. Um, why don't you tell us, why don't you just give us a, a brief synopsis in a sense, what, what is the book about and why did you want to write it? So just briefly, what, what is it and what, what, what drove you to it? Definitely. Yeah. The, so the premise of the book, uh, Skeletons of God's Closet, I think just kind of this idea that I found many of us, I think, fear uh, that God is maybe hiding some skeletons in the closet, uh, these tough topics of the faith that if we were to really take a close look at, I think with fears, we'd find that God is not really good or worthy of our trust. And so the particular topics here being uh, hell, judgment, and holy war. And, uh, and so I wanted to kind of go, well, I think this fear that if we open the closet doors, if we open up scripture and look more closely, uh, we're going to find that God's not good, worthy of our trust. So uh, what I found is that I think we often have a caricature of what's actually happening in scripture with those doctrines. And so I wanted to kind of invite us to confront some of those caricatures, offer what I feel are some, some paradigm shifts that have really helped me over the years, um, where we can, at the end of the day, uh, reclaim a more robust confidence in the goodness of God. And so the, the three topics of the book tackles are particularly uh, the subtitles, The Mercy of Hell, The Surprise of Judgment, and The Hope of Holy War. Uh, kind of going, I don't think mercy, surprise, and hope are what mo most people think of when they, when they think about those topics per se, but I wanted to argue I think it's actually uh, kind of central characteristics of how uh, they're portrayed and we kind of refit them back into the biblical narrative. Yeah, that, that's that's fantastic. Um, I I read the book. I saw the cover on the internet. I don't know, but a few months ago, I was like, "That is all right. That's fan. That's 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 interesting." You know, because oftentimes you get uh, apologetics books, and you'll have maybe a chapter on hell, or maybe a chapter on judgments, and uh, and you get the the holy war question, uh, which has the you know the invasion of the conquest of Canaan has become increasingly important in you know apologetic encounters or objections to the faith. But that's in like one book or two books, maybe you get Paul Copan or, you know, a couple of books here and there. And you get Pete Enns making that kind of a centerpiece of his kind of, you know, the Bible tells me so problems with the scripture. So I see here a book where, okay, no, this is, we're just going to hit the trifecta of, you know, <laughs> violence, judgment. And, and so I thought this, this could be very interesting uh, and, and it was, it was, it's probably my favorite treatment of these subjects. Um, I, I was going to say, you work in Portland, Oregon, and I, I've been there once and I've watched many episodes of Portlandia. Um, how, how much, I mean, how you know, how much of that is, is kind of, how much of that, that experience is shaping the, the, the way you talk about these subjects in the book? 
Yeah, definitely. You know, I mean, we're we're kind of right here in the in the heart of Portland and love the city. Uh, it's definitely, I'd say, kind of a, a more skeptical culture, skeptical as to the faith. And so, um, you know, when you say, "Hey, I'm a I'm a pastor," I know we tried to find creative new words like I'm a soul architect or so I don't know what even like <laughs> pastor seems to be uh, come back to you and uh, and so but I think yeah trying to um, both you know speak in a, in a way that uh, is culturally kind of relevant and engaging in our context here uh, but even for our people too you know just going that these are questions that I've wrestled with over the years that I think a lot of people in our church body uh, either they've wrestled with personally or they have friends or family who've walked away from the faith and this has kind of been their you know, stated reason uh, been topics like these. So uh, when we've done some classes on this in the past, that was where it feels like it kind of struck a nerve, you know, struck a chord um, in a good sense that there was a, a flood of interest and, and uh, yeah. And so it's been, it's been fun pastorally being able to dive into these with people and have it be a catalyst for growth in our, our faith. Well, that's fantastic. Um, I, I want to ask you, you talk about hell and you talk about judgment and holy war. And I, I, you know, I wrote a review of it for the Gospel Coalition, and I was—I remember when I, I read this, I didn't know anything about you. I was—I was thinking this could be cool, this could be—I don't know where he's going to go with it. But then I, I read it, and you, you're quoting guys like Augustine and Lewis and Keller, and even a little Jonathan Edwards and Oliver O'Donovan. I'm thinking, all right, all right, this is this is good. This is good stuff here. Um, what? Which of these? I, I just threw that in. Just because which of these segments I, I want to ask you was maybe the hardest for you to wrestle with personally or or intellectually uh, like you know there, there's three sections here but but which of these was in a sense the hardest to write or the hardest to you had to have a breakthrough on this for the r- other parts to fall into place or, or did it work like that yeah you know it's it's interesting um, I, I, I I don't know. Uh, it, it feels like there have been different seasons where different topics have been more poignant. And so I kind of mentioned, you know, like one uh, season of my life and uh, it was out working on uh, the Navajo Reservation for about six months. And in that season, particularly seeing the way that um, kind of uh, what I would say a misunderstanding of Israel's kind of encounter with Canaan in the Old Testament, seeing the way that had been used in U- U.S. history, things like Manifest Destiny and, uh, and it's, you know, abuse and mistreatment and injustice against uh, Native peoples and the legacy of that today on the reservation. So that was a season where um, really grappling with kind of the Holy War element and the Old Testament violence. Uh, in college, I would say that was a season where uh, kind of the, the health thing, that seemed to be a big question that just was coming from all my friends and, and that sort of piece. So uh, I think that one felt more poignant in that season. So it seems like it's kind of been, um, there have been different seasons in life where uh, the nature of kind of where I'm at and the context there is, has, has shaped sort of which one has, has been most pressing. That, that's, no, that, that makes sense. I think for, I think every one of us here on the, on the podcast has had those kind of seasons come and go with, uh, you know, I think we all do in the, in, in life of faith, just thinking certain issues weigh on our mind, uh, either for good or for ill or for doubt or for uh, faith. Um, so that makes sense. I know Andrew, I was going to, didn't want to dominate this uh, and hand it over to the rest of the guys for some questions and see where the conversation goes. I know Andrew had a question uh, he wanted to just raise with the book. So Andrew, you, you, you got something for him? Yeah, sure. Well, hey, Josh, I mean, I just, I've been a, as you can t- probably tell online, a big fan of the book. I just think it's extremely helpful. I've been giving it to people and talking about it and plugging it online. And, and I actually use it as a, it was weird. I went to um, a church 
church I'd never been to and they'd asked me to speak on hell and it was just after I'd read your book this is in the in Visalia in California and um, the whole thing was called H-E double hockey sticks which is an expression that didn't translate and I then looked at, looked it up and found out what it was and started um, started and actually I was it was actually quite embarrassing because it was live I said H-E-W oh okay is that like one of those expressions like we have sugar honey iced tea and the whole room went quiet and then realised what I'd said and started laughing I didn't realise that wasn't an Americanism so anyway I've had a bit of a story with it and I really enjoyed really enjoyed the book thought it was incredibly helpful and I've been a fan but so what I thought I'd do is I'd ask a couple of friends who I had recommended it to who were a bit more sort of curmudgeonly in nature and um, one of them is probably listening actually um and said it, what, nobody here by the way uh, present company excluded but just said you know what would what, what would your what would your pushback be what would your challenges be and and i thought one and one of them came out with two quite interesting comments um which I just wanted to put to you and see what you thought about and see how, how you would respond one of them was books like this um build much more of their hell theology on C.S. Lewis than they do on the Bible, which is obviously a comment I've also heard uh, with respect to Keller, and I think it's probably got some legs to it, and I'd love to see how you kind of, how you might respond to that. You know, is this just a, this is, Lewis wrote a really good way of thinking about this, and we really hope it's true, even though it isn't really in the Bible. We'll we'll talk about Lewis a lot and hope that that gets us off the hook, which was one challenge I thought it'd be interesting to hear your thoughts on. And the other one was that a couple of the hard questions you raised, like what about people who lived before Christ and what about the women and children killed by Israel, you raised but didn't then come back and address um, because your answers were moving in the more general and the specific category at that point. I, w- I don't know. That's that's kind of three questions in my one question that Derek's allowed me. But you can maybe you can just pick whichever one you'd most like to respond to or have a little go at all three. But it'd just be interesting to hear how you... Those, as I say, those come from somebody else, but I can also see why somebody would ask them. So I thought it might be interesting to put that to you and see what you thought. Yeah, definitely. No, that, that's interesting. Um, well, maybe on the, the CS Lewis one first, you know, it, it was interesting. I remember years ago reading... Uh, Great Divorce. Actually, Pilgrim's Regress shows up in the book. That was even an earlier one that, that felt like kind of a paradigm shift or a, a light bulb turned on, you know. And and uh, and I've heard since then kind of folks say, well, oh, yeah, well, Lewis, he wasn't a theologian or he, you know. Uh, but as, uh, as I, you know, kind of stepped back into reading the biblical narrative and uh, and all, like, I, I thought, no, I think actually that, that window and even a lot of the themes in, say, uh, Pilgrim's Regress, Great Divorce, uh, felt actually very Augustinian to me, you know, the sense of um, sin, we sort of cave in, uh, curve in upon ourselves, and, and uh, there's a, an isolation from, from God, from others. And so, in some ways, I, I thought in that section, it was almost like trying to provide a, a theological um, backdrop to support what I think, you know, Lewis is kind of getting at there. Um, but I did want to remove uh, it from, you know, being grounded on Lewis, where I think the hope was um, each chapter sort of has a central thesis or big idea. And I've tried to ground each of those as strongly as possible in um, directly coming directly out of scripture. You know, so chapter one, kind of reframing the story. Uh, it's not earth now, heaven, hell later. It's it's God's on a mission to reconcile heaven and earth from the destructive power of hell. And so really building the case for that for, from scripture. Um, the following chapter, uh, James, is a key passage where, uh, you know, we're the ones, not God, who unleash the destructive power of hell in the world. And so kind of James talking about the tongue. Uh, you know, uh, unleashing destruction and, and being itself set on fire by Gehenna. And chapter three, outside the city, exploring the Gehenna imagery. And um, and I'd say even on those those topics, kind of Pilgrim's Regress, Great Divorce, I've tried to ground those in even the, the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, which 
is often, you know, at face value, I think, uh, seen by many to be, be counterintuitive <laughs> to uh, kind of the, uh, the Lewis sort of, you know, trajectory there. So, um, but diving into the parable, I, I, I you know, try, diving into Jesus' teaching on Lazarus and the rich man, I really think that's, that's kind of central at the core of what's going on. So, um, yeah, so I, I understand the critique, but in many ways, I think the, uh, the hope was actually to provide um, a theological backdrop and framework to support what I think, uh, you know, some of the key points Lewis is making that, that I'd even see being grounded in kind of the historic, classic Augustinian uh, tradition. Um, so in, in that sense, it's, it's more of a it's more of a theological than an exegetical defense. In that sense, is is how you're seeing it? Yeah, when it, yes, when it when it comes to some of those, and I think there's even a section at the end where I go, okay, is this is this ancient or new? You know, and because my my hope also is really to not be uh, reinventing tradition, but hopefully reclaiming. You know, and and at the core, going, I, I think uh, there's an uh, alignment with what I I'm, I'm trying to articulate that I, I'd see being in alignment with kind of a robust historic orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. Um, that particularly I think in modernity and in, in the last 300 years, I think there's been an increasing kind of uh, maybe drift from. Yeah. Uh, I mean, as an example, you know, kind of uh, one question I've gotten uh, a few times is where do you think, you know, how, where has the, some of the distortions come from? And, and I think a central one, really chapter one is sort of a key uh, paradigmatic shift, you know, I, I think the, the whole heaven earth storyline and going, I see historically like uh, Josh. Really uh, quickly, the early, I, oh, some of our yeah. some of our listeners probably ha- don't know your first chapter well. Um, explain the basic premise because I saw that, and you know your little diagram, and that was probably, I mean, that's a key setup uh, chapter. So why don't you just give us a quick little breakdown of of that before you tell us how it is grounded in in scripture and all that um, for our listeners. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. So uh, I think the, the uh, caricature, as I put it, is kind of like we live on earth right now and one day I'm going to die and God's either going to send me up to heaven or down to hell. And, and uh, I think hell kind of starts to look like sort of this vindictive underground torture chamber. And uh, what I want to suggest is when we dive into the biblical narrative, it's uh, not earth now, heaven, hell later. It's actually a God that creates a, a good heavens and a good earth, like heaven and earth are created good by God. Uh, but then they're torn apart by the destructive power of sin, of, of our sin. Uh, but God is good, and he's on this mission to reconcile heaven and earth from the destructive power of hell. And, and so I think uh, we start to see God's motives in this storyline uh, really arising from God's goodness, God's redemptive um, pursuit of his world that's been alienated by the destructive power of sin. So uh, in this storyline, I'd say, you know, the early church, one of the first challenges that they faced was agnosticism and I think it was very much kind of that like that caricature like God's mission is to get us out of earth and into sort of the spiritual abstract heavenly realm and, and the early church really uh, fought tooth and nail to go no the the significance of Christ's resurrection God's mission is actually uh, reconciling creation to himself reconciling heaven and earth and so that theme um, you know if Feel strong, and then throughout the Middle Ages, a strong claim that Christ is King, not just of you know some other world. He's King and Lord of this world, uh, the King before whom uh, kind of the kings and rulers of the earth must bow. And I think in modernity, there starts to be this shift to um, uh, you know, well, Church, you can have heaven, but we get Earth. In a sense, uh, the disenchantment of the world, the banishing of transcendence, and 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 all. And I think it, that starts to be this shift where. 
in many ways, perhaps as the church, we bought into that storyline at times, and, and it starts to downstream distort our understanding, our conception of hell into kind of the, the torture chamber imagery. So you got that. Um, really quickly, because I don't want to, I know Alistair's been silent in the back, as usual. Um, Andrew had that question about uh, about those specific questions that you raise in the book, but maybe weren't specifically answered. Um, so, so what about what were they? What were they, Andrew? Oh uh, well, the two little ones. What about those people who lived before Christ? And what about the women and children killed by Israel? Um, and yeah, they were the two and the two specific ones. But yeah, yeah. Uh, so on the people who lived before Christ, I, I think. Um, uh, yeah, I, I I think I've wanted to. Uh, mm. See, I had one uh, one friend who read the book, and he goes, I, I, "He's like, I feel like one of the things you're it's given me is is freedom from mystery. Like, I I, I kind of have to trust Jesus is a good judge, and he's going to do what's right, you know. And so, in in some ways, I I, uh, I didn't want to. Um, I, I guess I almost feel like one of the dangers can be that you know where that that question often goes is we try and parse some kind of. Um, dividing line by which we're going to understand who's in or who's out, you know, and, and even where that tends to go, I, I found a lot is those who are the most spiritual, those who are the most religious, those who are the most, uh, whatever are the ones that will be revealed, uh, on judgment day as, as, as in. And I, I think there's something, uh, counterintuitive in the gospel that cuts the other direction where it's often the, uh, often the most religious folks that have the hardest time with, with Jesus. So, um, so I, I think I, I, I wanted there is an intentionality in trying to not give uh, some kind of criteria by which, you know, that would happen, but uh, pressing us into, uh, I, I think, the New Testament scene, uh, the coming of Jesus as good news for the nations of the world, the, the climax, the fulfillment of history, kind of the mystery of the ages that's now been revealed, um, and trusting uh, that, well, yeah, that I think the gospel points us to why God judges and who the judge is, that it's Jesus and these are his, his reasons, um, his, his kind of reconciling purposes behind judgment, uh, judging all that stands opposed to his reconciliation, uh, but sort of leaving it um, uh, open I, then that I don't think scripture gives us the particularities and ins and outs of kind of the, the who's in and who's out question that people often have. And yeah, so on that one, I think there's kind of an intentionality in leaving it open-ended um, and on the other one, uh, you know, I, I think I kind of make the uh, claim that it's uh, what I see happening in the Old Testament conquest accounts is um, that the targets of violence, it's the kind of fortified small military outpost cities, and in terms of the women and children sort of general population, uh, that the uh, picture there is one of driving out of, of kind of the exile of the Canaanites versus the, the slaughter of women and children. So. Um. Yeah, no, that really helps. That's what I thought you'd say, and I, I thought, but I thought the previous thing saying deliberate, deliberately leaving it open makes sense. I don't think I would. I knew that, but I think that was quite that's that's quite plausible and so on. So no, but I mean, for my my take, I just thought I thought the book was great. I thought it was really really helpful and um, I very very sort of shaping and formative for a lot of the right kinds of questions, which are which are excellent. So I know just really well done. But I'm sure Alistair is desperate to say something. 
Well, I'm gonna. I'm actually gonna chime in here, and I've got Alistair's permission to do it because I, um, Josh, you said some things that I'm really curious to follow up on. I mean, this this leaving the the content, the ins and outs of judgment open. Um, I think a lot of people are really comfortable and open to doing that um, appropriately. So, in an eschatological sense, like we don't want to say who's in and out permanently. Um, I'm curious what you would make of passages like First um, Corinthians five, where Paul um, uh, is dealing with a case of incest in uh, the Corinthian church, and um, you know this has this really provocative line where he says, "I've handed this person over to you, Satan, for the destruction of the flesh." Right? Um, there's a, a, a kind of uh, really sharp judgment that um, Paul makes. And that Jesus in the gospel seems to authorize the church to make. I, I wonder, I think one, one of the worries that people have with judgment is that it does authorize. It's not, it, it, I noticed in the book, in that middle section, you talk a lot about God's judgment on us um, and redeeming that. But you don't say much about what that means for our ability then in turn to be authorized to judge others not necessarily finally, but in any sense, in the name of Jesus. And I'm just curious what what you make of that problem and, and how we should think about that. As be, be, be careful, yeah, no, Josh. Great. Just know that that verse is actually Anderson's life verse. And so... <laughs> I will say, I will say, my, uh, my wife and I were talking the other night and uh, I was reminding her of some minor law about something, and she she said to me, "Oh, Matt, you you love laws so so much." And I said, "No, no, I don't. I just like reminding people when they're breaking yeah. them. That's all." So, um, so there you go, Josh. Tread lightly. <laughs> Have you guys brought me here to First uh, Corinthians five? Me, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> no, uh, no, that's great. Yeah, definitely. In that second section, my my main emphasis is uh, kind of with eschatological final judgment, and that's where I want to you know leave kind of open the who's you know who's ultimately in and out in in God's hands. Um, but as it comes to uh, judgment, obviously shows up in a variety of different ways. And in chapter twelve, actually, I, I actually quote First Corinthians five, where I'm going. I do think there are uh, many ways in which judgment is appropriate, uh, particularly within the church, within a local church body, um, that there is a sense because Jesus cares radically about um, our witness in, in the world as his people, as the communion of faith that's bound by him and the spirit, that um, I, I do believe there's a healthy uh, exercising of judgment with one another, you know, that I, I actually need that. I need that from uh, my brothers and sisters in Christ to call me out uh, on my sin when when that's, that's out there. And so I do think there's a, a, a healthy, appropriate context for church discipline. I kind of use the example, if I'm right, of, uh, uh, you know, if my neighbor asked me to go to, if my pagan neighbor asked me to go to a strip club, that's kind of one thing, I'm not going to go, but uh, how I respond is going to be very different than if an elder in my church asked me to go to a strip club. <laughs> like, um, that within the local church body, I think when there's sort of blatant, unrepentant sin, it's, it's out in the open. I think it's our duty even, uh, particularly as leadership as well, to uh, confront sin um, in love, you know, lovingly, but to uh, call those things out on the carpet uh, because I believe Jesus cares about uh, the purity of his bride, of his people, and of our witness. And so there's a, a legitimate kind of exercising of, yeah, of authority and of discipline and all there. Boom. Alistair? 
I found the book incredibly helpful. I, one of the things I most appreciated and found most bracing about it was the recovery of um, hell and judgment and holy war as aspects of good news of the gospel itself, not just as embarrassing um, Bible truths that we need to establish some sort of damage limitation for. Rather, these are things that we can actually sound out as full notes in our presentation of God's truth without having to step back and try and avoid them in some to some degree. One of the things I did wonder about reading it was the account that you would provide of um, things like at one point you spoke about, let me find the place. Yes, injustice violates God's love for the world. This is why in the biblical vision, injustice is not limited to degrading others, but includes degrading ourselves. When we demean other, ourselves through degrading behaviours such as sexual promiscuity, gluttonous eating or drug abuse, we violate ourselves as an object of God's affection. It's in page 159 to 160. On that particular point, and also on the point of offence against God, much of your book is focused upon offence against other human beings, whereas those seem to me to be the particular points that are sticking points within our current consciousness and our understanding of human offences and what actually deserves judgment. What would be your thoughts on how to address those within a contemporary context? Yeah, no, definitely. There's there's an emphasis in the book, and I, you know, I've actually, I think I realized this more in retrospect that there's kind of emphasis in the book on uh, the social nature of sin. Um, I, I found for a lot of our folks, I think I'm kind of trying to swing the pendulum a bit for where I found a lot of our folks have a kind of a natural propensity or tendency, maybe from the upbringing, to think of sin as primarily just something uh, personal between them and God, and and I think there's a strong kind of social dimension to our sin. Uh, violating God's shalom for the world, um, uh, which I bring up in there as well, includes uh, violating uh, the dignity of, you know, an injustice against God himself, and we do not honor God as God. Um, so trying to, uh, there, I think there is definitely kind of an emphasis on that social dynamic or, or nature of sin. Uh, but in retrospect, I do wonder if I um, maybe could have emphasized harder, stronger, uh, the realities in which sin is ultimately, uh, yeah, sin against God Himself. You know that um, I think of, yeah, David, um, as one friend pointed out. You know, like in in Psalm fifty one when he recounts his sin, and obviously it's against Uriah, it's against Bathsheba, it's it's against. Uh, there's so many involved socially, but he ultimately comes down to God against you and you only have I sinned. And uh, if if I were to go back, I might try and rethread that that theme in, in a little stronger as well. Well, one of the things that on this point, um, so I think Alistair, well, I think most people appreciate this. I, I read, and I know you're reading it right now, Jonathan Haidt's uh, The Righteous Mind, and he puts for, he puts forward his um, moral, moral foundations theory, talking about kind of six moral foundations, six kind of moral taste bud receptors, like the care and harm taste bud receptor moral receptor or liberty or equality or um loyalty or authority or or sanctity and what was interesting was it often you know it's a, his his thesis is that conservatives usually use all six and um kind of more progressives and liberals he himself being progressive and liberal usually limit themselves to about two or three the care harm and the liberty um and maybe some of the equality uh taste buds and what i what i saw in the book in retrospect is that you managed to 
formulate or present orthodox doctrines on hell, conquest, and judgment that usually they do have kind of all six going on, the sanctity dimension, the Godward dimension, whatever, but you manage to reframe them and show how all of them actually have huge impact for the, um, the basically hitting, hitting those taste buds that, that progressives and liberals will usually, and I'm saying theological in this sense, um, will usually, uh, write off Christian doctrine as being oppressive against, you know, on care terms or harm terms or liberty terms. You're actually showing, no, actually all of your deepest concerns are answered and met, uh, in doctrines like, like given, given your own very strong passions about these things. So I just thought that was fascinating because what, what you ended up doing in large part was reformulating all these things in order to emphasize that no, it hits these two. And I think in a lot of ways, that's a helpful um, counterbalance because sometimes, so I, I'll be honest, I, I, I see, you know, in the reformed and kind of Calvinistic community and all that kind of thing, um, very rightly stressing the Godward dimension, very rightly distressing, uh, stressing the, the holiness and, and God's, God's kind of self-directed or self-concerned wrath and all that kind of thing. Um, you know, it's in the Bible, uh, undeniable, but oftentimes ignoring the social dimensions of these things, when in fact that is a strong cultural connecting point where we're in a sense, you, yeah, I mean, you, you don't have to, you don't have to only focus on that in order to preach these things, but but this is actually a strong part of the biblical witness, as I think you showed. So that was just an interesting thing, and that, that also kind of plays into the way you depict wrath. Like I, I think I've noted, you you focus more on um, you know if you look at classic reform categories, active versus passive wrath. You don't deny active, but you kind of focus more on the handing over aspect in your book, the handing over to sin, handing over to its just consequences. So that was just interesting, as I was thinking later. Um, I don't know, I'm, I'm speaking yeah. for you, but but that was just... Yeah, no, totally. Yeah, I think there was, I, I don't know how much it was conscious or subconscious, but uh, kind of this, yeah, maybe a, a strategy or idea of mine of, of presenting, I, I think appealing to our common um, kind of desires culturally and beyond, you know, for, for justice, for righteousness in the world. But then uh, when once we've kind of tapped into that, sort of flipping the tables and showing the ways that we ourselves have um, violated the, those, you know, uh, demands of justice and realities and kind of putting us in, in the dock, so to speak, before um, be before God. And, and there's definitely, I'd say, yeah, I've loved Heights book, and there's definitely behind the scenes um, in Skeletons, there's a, uh, I'd say it's being driven by uh, like a Trinitarian and an affective theology, kind of a Trinitarian theology of God and an affective kind of understanding of, of us. And so that's, that's not necessarily made explicit in the book, but uh, implicitly behind the scenes uh, for me, just the God is an eternal, holy communion of love, that God himself being social, relational in his very uh, being as Father, Son, and Spirit, I believe creates the world relationally. And so uh, it just kind of flows naturally out of that, I think, the idea that, that sin itself would be relational in nature, not only towards God, but towards um, the world that he's made. And then for us on the affective dimension, kind of that sense that it, it goes much deeper than just our behaviors, but um, that our loves, our passions, our desires are uh, driving driving the train, so to speak, on, uh, on the, the, the injustice that uh, our sin is. And yeah, yeah, and 
I'll stop there. <laughs> One of the points that was the main takeaway from me, for me from the book and something that you returned to at many points was simply the fact that God is incredibly good, good in a way that exceeds our power to imagine, and that these things that we'd often think of as obstacles to regarding God in that particular way are in fact aspects of that goodness. And it's something I was thinking about lately. Um, we're going through our study this week in church on James 1 and talking about the way that people might attribute temptation to God or being tempted by God or doubt that God would give the gift of wisdom to those who ask for it. And James stresses that God gives every good and perfect gift. There's no shadow of turning with him and that he desires what is good for us. And often I think that's one of the points that I found your book especially helpful on, this challenge to the idea that there's this, um, we're in this state of um, being tested by God, God wanting to push us one direction or other, heaven or hell. No, rather God wants to restore the world, to do what's best for his world, to bring us into fellowship with himself. And hell isn't something that's a result of God's desire for us, but a re result of our desire in the same way as James says that when we're misled into sin through temptation, it's our desire that's leading us to death, not anything of God. God desires what is good for us. He wants us to be the, his first fruits of his creatures. And he also wants to strengthen us and make us steadfast through temptation and trial. That's why he gives them to us, not in order that we might be tripped up. So that's probably the, the main standout point from the book for me, that we can recover these doctrines as aspects of God's goodness and grace towards us and declare them with a full voice and in an unembarrassed way. Yeah, I, 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 totally, I totally agree with that. and I, I just think it's, it's, the, it's the beautiful way of inverting the way we often think, the, the logical structure of what we often think, which is God did this, this isn't good, therefore either God isn't good or this didn't happen whereas what you've done and I think is absolutely right is to say God did this God is good therefore in whatever way it may, there's something has gone wrong somewhere if we conclude that this somehow isn't for the good of human beings in general and therefore we're going to look and see what those ways we might have misunderstood it might be but we begin with our premise uh, God is good at the top um, and I just find that way of honouring scripture but honouring the goodness of God I totally agree with Alistair that it, it brings those two together in a very uh, a very compelling way and I know in many ways not a completely original one it's not like anything you've said I don't think had been said before but I think the way you've packaged it and brought it all together in order to defend that, those premises in a generation where they'd often be either one or both would be questioned I just thought was extremely helpful mm, man thanks so much that's, that's yeah. really yeah. we're gonna we're gonna wrap up here but um I, I did want to just highlight a few things just for our listeners. Uh, I really highly recommend this book, uh, especially on the issue of the conquest of Canaan that's coming up a lot, uh, just popularly in the internet, in conversations with uh, people who are just skeptical about scripture and things like that. And uh, Josh manages to draw on good um, biblical scholarship, good biblical theology, uh, there's even a fascinating. I thought one of the one of the most interesting little sections in the book was a small defense of just war theory, which nobody does popularly anymore. It's like everybody's doing, everybody's <laughs> on the Howard Watch train or whatever it is, or 
Zond or whatever. <laughs> it's funny. That's actually the section I've probably gotten the most pushback. Yeah. <laughs> which, uh, well, which wasn't even a prime point. I'm, I'm glad I'm glad you got it in there. I, I loved it. Um, just 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 for the sheer novelty of seeing someone in the flesh under the age of like 40 defending it. Um, or I don't know how old you are, but still. Uh, and then and then I think I think one of the things that got me personally earliest on was um, the early section where you talked about the way, you know, you, you appealed to the issues of, of sex, slavery or um, violence, whatever. And you, and you talked about how, you know, we hate these things, um, but God hates them more. Like and, and the way these things kind of the in, in ways that we don't see we are implicated in in sin in a way that's and it wasn't really condemning but it was it was it was eye opening much in the way that lewis had a way of making you just realize oh shoot i'm i'm involved in this uh, in a kind of disarming fashion um, this is not just an intellectual book uh, this is where i'm going it's not just an intellectual book of like i have a stockpile of answers but there is actually much about it that opens opens up and lays bare uh, the in light of the goodness of God, as, as Alistair and Andrew point out, that's like the really highlight, um, my need for that goodness. Uh, and so I, I just really highly recommend it. It was one of my favorite you know, top five books last year. So um, pick it up. It's cheap. We're going to link um, probably we're going to link it and we're going to link my at least my review uh, in the show notes. Go to the show notes for some of this stuff. Um, any any last any last comment? Matt or Josh? Yeah, you know, maybe uh, one final uh, just sort of little uh, tidbit too, you know, it came up earlier, but uh, behind the scenes with the book too, I think uh, the theme of resurrection, again, maybe not so much explicitly, but was driving the train. I think that part of the hope was to write a book on eschatology that doesn't use the word eschatology, you know, that's accessible for folks and letting that sort of uh, reclaim, uh, yeah, a confidence in the goodness of God and kind of where things are headed. But yeah, I mean, it's great getting a chance to love you guys. Uh, I've loved the show, and it's, it's really awesome to be able to be, be out here on here with you guys. All right, cool. And I think, I think Matt's just going to silently let this pass. So once again, thanks for listening. Thanks for being patient with us uh, for not having a show for a couple weeks. I know some of you were in withdrawals and just kind of nervous. One's a show coming back. I can't <laughs> cope. I don't, know, I don't know what I believe anymore. Don't worry. We are back. We are here for you. Okay. Uh, but, but really, as always, uh, go with the grace of Christ in whatever you are doing this week.